0: Hello, and welcome to Pakistonomy. I'm Uzair Yunus. Startups play a key role in the social and economic progress of any country. Vibrant economies, both developed and emerging, have innovative startup ecosystems. Today, household brands like Intel, Microsoft, Samsung, and Alibaba were all once startups. And as they blossomed into multinational companies, they delivered immense value not only to their shareholders, but to society and the world at large. So how is Pakistan's startup ecosystem doing? My view is that it's at a takeoff point, but it requires the right policies to foster more investment um, so that startups can redefine Pakistan's economy. To talk more about this today, I'm joined by Mehvesh Arfin. Mehvesh is the co-founder and chief operating officer of Gharpar, a social enterprise that provides timely, convenient, and professional at-home beauty services to its female clients. But that's not it. Gharpar has a social motivation behind it as well. It provides lucrative economic opportunities to women, allowing them to become economically self-sufficient. Mehavish, thanks for coming on the podcast. How are you doing today?
1: Hi, Uzair. Thank you so much for the generous introduction. Uh, I'm doing well. How about yourself?
0: I'm doing well, trying to stay warm. And my apologies for the initial snafu. I know we talked for about five minutes uh, and it didn't record. So now it's recording and I think we're good to go. So let's start with Gharpa. Tell us a bit about the startup, how and why you founded it and what's the mission and vision of the company?
1: Yeah, so um, essentially, if you look at the, the beauty services industry in, in Pakistan and in places like Pakistan, India and all these other countries as well, uh, it's 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 worth billions of dollars. And uh, beauty is uh, a very important beauty services. Uh, grooming and looking good all the time is a is a huge part of the Pakistani woman's lifestyle, whether in all stratas of the economy. So it's not just someone, you know, people have this image that beauty services are only, taken by those who are rich and who can afford it as a luxury. But actually, in Pakistan, it's not just a luxury. Um, and everyone is partaking in some form of beauty service or the other. Um, so while that is the reality in Pakistan, what me and my co-founders recognized quite quickly were that, that some there are some issues that are not being addressed in uh, the beauty services industry Uh, the number one issue was that it's predominantly informal and it's obviously dominated by women who are then in, in that informal economy. Uh, And when you have such a dominant informal sector, you also see a lot of labor exploitation. And so we also from the, from the demand sides and we felt that clients were frustrated with uh, the, an inconsistency in the quality of services that are given. And, um, there was not enough the skill set that beauticians had, whether in salons or at, with the ones who came at home informally. Their skill set was not very good, and they were not professional. So uh, it, this is basically the two the two gaps that we recognized, and we decided to create a platform where we could upskill uh, freelance beauticians and uh, train them in mid to high end level of beauty services and connect them with with uh, clients who demand and are willing to pay for mid to high-end beauty services. And uh, we started the company in 2016. We had six beauticians and about 200 something clients. And today uh, we have 30,000 clients and 150 uh, beauty technicians.
0: That is amazing. And that's amazing growth, amazing impact. And overall, like you're redefining the beauty industry in Pakistan, of which I had some experience in December when I was in Karachi. But that's for another day. Yeah. Um, you, you identified two issues, right? Informal uh, economy and the role of women in the informal economy and upskilling. And, you know, some of the work I've written and done research on shows that, you know, even within peer economies in South Asia, Pakistan sort of lags in terms of women's participation in the formal economy. And a lot of it has to do with the second issue you identified, which is lack of skills or lack of literacy um, among women, uh, given that we are a patriarchal society, conservative in most places. Um, So tell me a bit about what was it like to convince women, A, to enter a formal economy and join a platform like yours, and B, what were the type of skills you had to teach them uh, when you started this company and what did you learn along the way
1: yeah so is there that's um, the point that you made about upskilling being a challenge and uh, you know the pakistan's patriarchal society does it sort of uh, you know takes makes it difficult for women to participate in the formal sector it's not just the lack of skill sets and uh, literacy. It's also a major issue of mobility. Actually, that's what the real core issue is, is the, the physical and cultural mobility constraints that women in Pakistan face. Hmm. Um, that has been our biggest challenge, uh, convincing women to come on board with us. You know, we thought it would be really easy when we started because um, we were like, oh, you know, they, these we are offering these women An opportunity where they can make 5x, 6x the amount that they have been making in Mm -hmm. their own personal salons in their communities or working in a salon uh, for someone else. Uh, So they will come rushing to our platform. But it was interesting because that's not what happened. Uh, I think people were very concerned about going into other people's homes, uh, getting out on the street, getting out of their homes, Um, women and their families still prefer that women work in salons, even if they're being exploited because they are in what we call a char diwari, which which Mm. means Mm. that they are in behind closed doors in four walls and they are quote unquote safe there and they're being watched and they're not going anywhere. So it's that sense of, you know, patriarchal security and control that keeps people from wanting to leave the salon even though the salons are exploiting them, they don't see it as exploitation. They actually see it as safety and security. So that, our biggest challenge is to, to change the mindset. And uh, my work, personally, my work is now mostly going on different uh, mobilization rounds in different communities and talking to these women and trying to get them and their families to sort of shift the way they're they're thinking about a woman going from home to home to make money uh when we started in Islamabad um when the first mobilization that I did here uh was was quite interesting because um when we said that you know you'll be able to make 60,000 70,000 rupees so 400 500 a month uh, that
0: by the way is not made by a lot of graduate students coming out of elite universities in Pakistan uh, yeah correct?
1: absolutely not and so when exactly so when we started saying this which is the fact and it's the truth um people started thinking that we are trying to send send these women for some kind of like shady business to other people's homes because that's where people's minds go to over here and so these are the kind of this is the kind of cultural baggage and mindset that we have we have to sort of uh, work towards changing and that it has become a major part of our mission
0: very interesting so what are Mavish Arfin's key talking points and she goes into these mobilization campaigns and talks to women and I'm guessing the males do you talk to males at all during this part or talk is it talk just...
1: to the men uh, after uh, having two to three one-on-one contacts with the female oh.
0: Okay, so what do you tell these women? How do you convince them that, you know, this is a win win situation for them? They won't get exploited. They will make money, a lot more money than some graduates ever dream of coming out of uh, universities and that it will be a safe environment for them. What do you tell them?
1: So basically, the first thing that we tell them is we talk to them about their dreams and their hopes. And it's very sad. Some of them don't even have an answer to that. So the first thing we do is we try to create some kind of meaning in their minds. Like, what is it that you want? What are your desires? What is it that you seek? So we we actually get very personal with them and try and get the energy to, to stir up a bit in the room. And then people start opening up about wanting to make a home, wanting to marry their children off, wanting to send their kids to school. And then, We ask them, so what are you going to do about it? And in that, a lot of different answers come up, which are mostly in the negative. So, you know, um, my husband doesn't do this or my mother-in-law doesn't allow that. And so there's Mm. a lot of like this this sense of not having control. So the second thing we do is try to make them realize and work towards having a sense of control that actually their sphere of influence and control is actually much more more palpable than they think it is. And so, because that's where the, where that's how the change has to start, right? It starts from Mm -hmm. the individual believing that they can take things in their own control and then going and negotiating with the different stakeholders in their families. So that's how we start. And then, of course, we address their concerns, which are very valid, that you know what happens if I go to someone's home? It's a stranger. We have different protocols in place for that. We do like CNIC uh, checks. CNIC is the national the national identity card in Pakistan. So we first check that for a client uh, to make sure she's female, and and we run her information through uh, Nadra.
0: Hmm. So we have our protocols okay. in
1: place for their security as well, um, and then we do a lot of like risk risk perception management exercises um this is literally something that I came up with myself which is where we show them examples of everyday risks they take that may be appalling to other people but are normal for them because it's a habit for example seven people sitting on a bike
0: <laughs> so, yeah, without the helmet without a and, helmet
1: and we always tell them you know this is okay for you but this is bizarre for someone who comes from somewhere else you yeah. know it's a death sentence so we try to then give them these examples and through some humor and 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 sort of sh- showing them some perspective, they begin to understand that fear is actually in the mind and and it's a question of habit and what they're used to. And this is also something that they can sort of, op- an opportunity that they can open their minds up to and mm-hmm. because it's going to benefit them.
0: Wow. And so... You know, I'm trying to go through this journey, right? So you've convinced, you've done gone on a mobilization campaign. You've convinced a woman to join your network. Um, and before I go to that, like a question I had was on the application side. Can can the beautician then review and rate the person whose home she went to? And does that play a role in how you keep people on or off-board them off your platform in terms of customers?
1: Yeah, yeah. so our beauticians do raise, we have a flagging and a banning system. Um, a flagging is when um, a certain client is difficult, but not offensive. Uh, so, for example, someone who who has a tendency to make the beauticians wait, right? Hmm. Or who has a tendency to be annoying, um, say annoying things or just be difficult. Uh, we flag them internally in our system. And when they're flagged, they show up as flagged. And so the other beautician or the future beautician who goes... Uh, the customer care representative who's dispatching the appointment can let that beautician know that, Oh, this lady is kind of difficult or she may make you wait. So watch out for that. Mm -hmm. Um, Then the banning system is of course, where um, if uh, the beautician has a complaint of the client um, being abusive towards her, trying to harass her, any situation where the beautician was made to feel unsafe, Mm -hmm. uh, we, First, uh, try and investigate the case, and then we ban the client. It's it's been it's been very rare for us to have to actually ban the client, but we've done it.
0: Okay, no, and I'm guessing through the risk perception exercises, right? The beautician is aware of some things that she may have considered normal before, um, but is now more open to understanding that she is being harassed or she's being uh, aggressively dealt with with the client. Yeah. And so that that's an important way to make sure that not only is there a system but they're trained to know what are the signs and things to watch out for that they should be open communicating. yeah
1: to. so we make it we make it very clear to them what their rights are and what so we basically do boundary setting exercises with them and what like what boundaries they need to watch out for so while they have to maintain boundaries and be respectful towards the client, they have to They have to expect the same for themselves. Um, mm-hmm. So yes, guess we do those awareness exercises.
0: Give me an example of a boundary setting exercise. And I'm only asking you this because my guess is a lot of the listeners on this podcast, um, given Pakistan's internet numbers and how they tune in, at least the ones I've looked at are skewed towards males, right? And so I want you to give us an example of what is a boundary setting exercise that you do, which... You know, again, to some listeners may may seem like totally like OK thing in our culture, but it's actually not. And that you have to sensitize a beautician about.
1: Yeah. So. One of it, one of it is um, comments. Right. So um, if you go to salons, a lot of the times, I don't know if you've spoken to other uh, women who are who have gone to Pakistani salons, but what a lot of the times what the beauticians do is they they comment on your body and your your hair and basically make you feel really uh, conscious about yourself. And their tactic is to make you feel so insecure that you want to avail all their services. Mm. So what we teach our beauticians is that they are not to do that; that they are not to upsell by making the client feel small. And in the same way, um, what we train them is that to, to be conscious of how, whether a client is being inappropriate with them. And that can be in the form of uh, unwanted touch. So all our clients are females, but at the same time uh, in our culture, sometimes people just touch you even though you're not comfortable with it.
0: Uh, oh, yeah. I had a lot of that experience <laughs> given when Lauren came to Karachi and she had a lot of moments where she's like, why so-and-so touching me on the face and touching me all the time? I don't like it. And I actually had to tell a couple of you being like, no, that's not okay. But I, I experienced that. Again, it was something yeah, yeah. I had never thought about. Um, yeah, in, But she sensed it. It was different for her.
1: Yeah, because, you know, I think in American culture, that no one can dare touch you like other unless you've given... Permission, Or I mean, it's a totally touch is a totally different uh, way to treat it in a totally different way um, in in other cultures, some other cultures, but in some cultures like Pakistani Indian culture, for example, people will grab kids and like pull their cheeks and our aunties and khalas will come and pull our cheeks and so <laughs> people think it's a it's a it's a way of expressing love but uh, it's also like they don't understand that some people are just not comfortable with it and you you can't just go and grab someone's cheek and pull it because you find it mm-hmm. cute so
0: it's <laughs> <laughs> true
1: so basically uh, that's what we so our beauticians you know so so we i have awareness about this but a lot of the beauticians themselves have been doing it their whole lives, so or have been subject to it. So they don't find it weird, uh, but we have to tell them that it is weird. That you you can't be touched. There's no reason for anyone to touch you, and and if someone is touching you and you know it's inappropriate, then please uh, let us know.
0: Mm-hmm so no that's that's great i mean you're building that awareness right and that has not only implications good implications for you yeah platform, and but more than, for society more, overall
1: more importantly than the touching aspect i think the other thing that we we make them aware of is how the client is speaking to them um so we do flag and ban clients most of the banning we've done has been on the basis of clients being rude to our beauticians um but so so that comes from us training the beautician to help them be aware of how they should, they need to, how they need to speak to a client, and how they can be spoken to.
0: Mm-hmm. Okay, and and so jumping back now to this journey of a beautician, right, who's joining Garper. So you've convinced her and her family, I'm guessing, to allow her to work and step into your platform. Um, what are some of the training challenges you come across? What do you train them? that you feel like across the board you see okay here are the top five things I've seen over the past few years that I need to make sure this beautician is aware of and upskill her where do you see the challenges there
1: um so the challenge is definitely in the soft skills training as opposed to the technical skill um they are much quicker at picking up the technical skill so how to give a facial how to do a manicure pedicure I think the challenge is um, the challenge is really inculcating a a civic sense and professionalism, which for a lot of people um, outside of Pakistan and the developed world, especially, might be common sense and common etiquette. But it's not; not, it's not here because we are not raised, unfortunately, with a lot of these uh, ethics and ethics of professionalism and how to speak how to sit how to walk how to like you know so one of our pillars is if if if, if you look into uh we have five pillars of gharpar and um one of our pillars is mindfulness and uh, in that pillar basically we're we're, te- we're we're teaching our beauticians how to be how to be mindful of their behavior in a, in a client's home. So how to keep things clean, how to not stare here and there. It's very difficult, you know, because these women are going into all kinds of homes. Some homes are, are massive, like you and I wouldn't have even seen such homes. So yeah. it's, it's very tempting to all of a sudden, if you're coming from the kind of background that they are coming from, to not stare and look around, for example. Um, so these are like little small things that we have to teach them. Uh, and that is a bigger challenge than the technical skill. Uh, you Most of the complaints that we get from our clients are actually not about the technical skill. They end up being about the soft skills aspect, that your, t- your beautician was talking to me unnecessarily, or your beautician was staring here and there, or your beautician. They're all related to professionalism as opposed to the technical skill. And we focus a lot on it Um The reason why our clients keep coming back to us is because we are really professional and they're quite amazed at the level of professionalism that our beauticians are able to display, given that um, 80% of them are illiterate.
0: 80% are illiterate, you said? Yeah, 80% of
1: them are illiterate and we've taught them how to use Uber. We've taught them how to use online banking from their phones. They all have phone accounts through this app called simsim Sim. um, hmm. so they they they're using that they're using the gharpar app so so they become really really tech savvy uh, and these are again these are women who don't know how to read and write
0: so you're basically telling me that through gharpar you're bringing on women into the formal economy, not only are you doing that, they're mostly illiterate and you're bringing them into the tax net and being a part of mainstream Pakistani economic society. That's amazing. Yeah.
1: You put it like that, I'm also like, wow, that's amazing.
0: No, it is. It is. (laughs) It is fantastic, right? Because I mean, I woke up this morning and I was checking out Dawn just to see what's in the business news and the FBR chairman was on at some conference and he said, we need to document the economy and they're doing it in a, in a way that's basically policing. And my view is that that doesn't work. What you're doing is what works, right? If yeah. you bring people, give them a, a good way to earn a living and give them the training and the skill set that they need, even though they may be illiterate, that's the way for progress and especially progress among women. Um, Speaking of women, you are a woman entrepreneur in Pakistan, and you touched upon this a little bit, that we are a patriarchal society, and there are challenges when you go out and uh, mobilize to recruit beauticians on your platform. But for you personally, what was it like or what is it like to be a woman entrepreneur? Um, Just talk us through that, because... I think it. I know you and I know it's been a fascinating journey. So I want uh, our listeners to hear about your journey as an entrepreneur as well. You know,
1: actually, um, this whole. So, you know, we would you one would assume that being a woman entrepreneur in Pakistan is a challenge. Actually, it's just being a woman entrepreneur. Because, frankly speaking, majority of the pitches that we've done in California and in Pakistan even has been to foreign investors, and these are all male. Most of them were all white male uh, VC. Hey, director. that's Silicon
0: Valley for you. Sorry, that's Silicon Valley for you, right?
1: Yeah, and they our challenge was not has not been so much with the Pakistani investors. It's been more with them. Uh, they are the ones who are actually quite myopic when it comes to um, not just a woman, but a woman coming from a developing country, and then talking about a beauty business. If I if I were a man talking about the logistics business, they would be sold in half a second. Hmm. Uh, but however, because I'm a woman talking about the beauty business, they're just they just it the perception and the optics of it just doesn't f- sit with them. And so that has been a big challenge for us um, is to get even though our numbers are absolutely stellar, like I like I told you, like we um, have um, thirty thousand clients, and you know our average ticket size is twenty five hundred rupees. So you can do the math on the kind of mm-hmm. revenues we're generating um, on a daily basis. So we're closing at like three hundred thousand rupees so i don't know how much you would put that at dollars but that's an average so so we're making really good money but the fact remains that it's not what people want to see it's not what people want to hear and so they sort of switch off um we've had like a lot of in-depth discussions a lot of like due diligence rounds with a lot of companies as well and you know it's just I don't know. It's it's just basically the optics because there are companies that are able to raise and they've mostly been men led by men and in the logistics affair and Mm. and and the companies that have raised that kind of money and Gharpur were pitching to the same uh, venture capitalists. So Mm
0: -hmm.
1: so it's not like people were different or anything.
0: So what's okay. the annoying thing? Like, what's the most annoying thing you've heard doing that and like interacting with these mostly white men um, trying to raise money? So what my favorite that, one you? was
1: uh, where one of them asked my CEO that, "How is she going to manage the company with four children?"
0: <laughs> what?
1: Yeah, and this was a this was a Gora, by the way. This was a wow. this was a white dude. Yeah, and um, he then sent his Pakistani. Um, colleague uh, who is also a very big uh, investor in the in the startup ecosystem and um, he raised the same question again and when he raised the same question again I called him out on it and I said your comment is sexist and he just just
0: totally he, he just lost it, got super <laughs> defensive, and so, you know
1: and he just, made it
0: worse. Made it worse for himself.
1: Yeah, he just kept making it worse and worse and worse. And so yeah, um, it was uh, it was quite a match and you know, uh it was very interesting because um uh, my my partner was apologetic, but then the rest of us were like, no, we're not sorry, like it's not okay. And, mm-hmm. you know, like, and we, and we made some very valid points where we said, you know, if there was a man sitting on in the boardroom, and he gets a mm-hmm. call from his wife that your kid's not okay. And he gets up and he leaves, everyone will be like, wow, what an amazing father. Clapping. Yeah. But if it's a woman, it's all of a sudden, you're questioning her, her, her commitment to the to her company.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And so and then
0: that questioning is is so obvious right it's always there that at times women often internalize that and they don't feel comfortable getting up and going to look after that child because they're worried about how exactly. people might and
1: they end them. up neglecting yeah and then they have to fight that battle that that at home they're being labeled as wives or or mothers who are neglecting their 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 family duties or their family obligations so it's it becomes really very difficult um if you're if you're constantly being labeled Um, But yeah, so that's one example of what we we had to face.
0: Yeah, that's, I mean, it's one of those things, right? I don't know how much you follow American politics as crazy as it is these days, but the New York Times, for example, came out with its endorsement for the Democratic primaries and they picked Elizabeth Warren and Amy Krohbuchar as the co-endorsed leaders. And I was talking to like, you know, some friends and Lauren yesterday over dinner and we were just like, they wouldn't do that to a man, right? You would yeah. never see the editorial board of the New York Times. They've never done it. So this is the first time they're doing it. And oh, by the way, they just happen to be women. Mm. Is that you would pick one man to be your candidate. But in this case, they, because women, you're treating them differently because it's like two women. We can't decide between them. And it's just ridiculous the way that happened. But that's another example of how, yeah, I you think- know, the standards are in so many ways different, um, Yeah, even in... United States or what we consider "quote unquote" developed economies. Um, speaking about startups and and growing pains, um, where do you see both growing pains for your company, but as well as the larger economic uh, startup ecosystem at large? Like, where is it that you feel you are ready to grow, but you're encountering headwinds that you know need to be challenged?
1: Yeah, so that's a really interesting and uh, relevant question because what we're finding now is that a lot of companies who are bigger and startups that are bigger and older to us by a year or two, even three, uh, are now struggling to get um, investment into their firms. And our ecosystem is set up to... to s- to, is set up in a way where it's really difficult to open corporate dollar bank accounts, which is funny because the country really needs <laughs> that foreign Yeah, we
0: country. hear this all the time. Every time someone from Pakistan's government comes to D.C., they're talking about foreign direct investment and bringing capital into the country. Yeah, so, except that,
1: that when it comes to like startups, it's really tough for us to open bank accounts where we can keep the FDI in dollars, right? Um what we have to do is that we have to basically open an account somewhere else. And then that money comes into Pakistan in our Pakistani accounts in PKR, which is, Mm. which is kind of ridiculous. Now the policy is there, but the policy is not being implemented by the banks and the state bank. And um, it's really interesting that you brought this up because um, uh, recently uh, last year in in the last quarter of 2019, uh, the government formed a e-commerce um, policy uh, council. And I am one of the 50 members of the National Council on e-commerce. And what we're trying to do is is we're trying to really push for uh, implementation of some of the policies actually that have been there that are favorable mm-hmm. but are not being implemented. And so we're working on it. Now, let's see. Uh, the other issue and the other problem that people face and why people don't want to put FDI into Pakistan is uh, the fact that uh, it's very hard to take money out of Pakistan as well. Mm-hmm. So repatriation mm-hmm. is 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 a challenge. So naturally, if you're looking at you know millions of dollars of investment, um, nobody wants to put in that much money if they don't know how to get it out of there.
0: Yeah, yeah, and and I mean it's 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 a catch twenty two, right? Yeah. Because it's like if you're having investors bring money in, a function of that is going to be dividends and profits exactly. that need to be repatriated back to the home country from which the investment came from. And if you won't allow that, you can be giving stellar margins compared to the rest of the world or the rest of Asia. Yeah. Um, but the investor is not going to come to you because they can't get that money out. And oh, by the way, while their money is stuck every three to four years, your currency halves in value. So exactly that whatever means. their profit might be, it's going to be halved and they know it's going to be halved in about four years time.
1: Yeah. So um, exactly. The valuation is not helping at all either because you're putting in dollars and you're getting, you're putting in $1 and you're getting 50 cents back. It doesn't make sense.
0: Um, yeah. And, and so you said there's policies and they're not implemented. You're on this council and trying to push them to do it. What's your take on why is that the case? Like it's common across Pakistan, across sectors in Pakistan, that the policies are there. They're actually very open, very liberal, low, uh, lowercase liberal um, in terms of allowing investment flows to go come in and go out. So why aren't they implemented? What's your view on that?
1: Yeah. So that's a really good question. And my answer to that is that it's really complicated. I think Mm -hmm. there are so many different stakeholders involved. Um, The biggest stakeholder being State Bank of Pakistan. Um, The thing is that the State Bank of Pakistan has very strict regulations for banks Right. And I think what's happening is and I don't know the details of this, but because the regulations for banks are so strict that the risk of opening up these accounts becomes higher for these banks. So I think it's not just enough for the state bank to have policies that are saying, oh, TK, you can open a bank account, but they need Mm -hmm. to support, give support uh, to banks so that and help them encourage them to to have infrastructure that will allow them to create open these bank accounts these fdi bank accounts corporate fdi bank accounts with lower risk i don't know if that makes sense but
0: mm-hmm.
1: yeah i i know i, no,
0: I th- yeah i think that makes sense because you're basically saying that the state bank and working with other financial institutions should basically develop an accelerated process, right, that allows startups to open bank accounts, to move money, to bring that
1: investment. That should be
0: a priority.
1: Yeah, and there need to be entire SOPs as to how they can support this this policy of allowing startups to open uh, FDI accounts. Um, Mm -hmm. So I think that's what the next steps are. Let's see. Um, okay, so, yeah, we're very so, hopeful because uh, we desperately need it, and also, like, I'm sure you're aware of uh, the government's uh, import substitution policy. So, if they really mm-hmm. want this to take off, and they want people to start exporting, uh, they need to they need to have much more. Uh, they have policies that are much more friendlier towards opening up these foreign bank accounts.
0: Mm-hmm. And that's, again, like the prime minister talked about ease of doing business, and that's a fundamental part of ease of business, yeah. right? Like yeah. you know, bank accounts and moving money because transactions is yeah. what a business is all about. Um, what other um, issues that you see that's on in the investment and policy side? Anything else people should be aware of that, you know, is unique to Pakistan startup ecosystem or you think is a unique opportunity or challenge that if uh, met can accelerate growth further?
1: I mean, challenge, this is the main challenge, but um, I think what's more important is the amount of opportunity that's here. Um, I think that there is tremendous amounts of opportunity to, to innovate and to come up with uh, creative solutions for the many umpteen <laughs> problems that we have at every level. So for me, um, whenever I look around, I, I'm not just the lens that I'm viewing things from is not that, Oh, yeah, problem, a problem, a problem, a problem. It's more like, Oh, here's an opportunity. Here's an opportunity, an opportunity. So there's plenty of opportunity uh, for people to come and start business here. It's, it's really easy to start business here, to be very honest. I think the challenges start coming up when you're scaling up in your, Mm. your four, five, six, but, um, We're working towards it and the ecosystem. I mean, this is the first time that you have startups that are basically the government is asking startups to tell them what to do. I think that's a huge step. Uh, Mm -hmm. I'm very hopeful for that. Uh, The government is trying. They are having relevant conversations. I know that things seem like they're all over the place, but some of the, the steps that they're taking are quite positive that we haven't seen before. So let's see. we're hopeful.
0: no, that's that's important, right? And I think my view is that companies like HERper can be the graduating class that go through some of these growing pains. Um, but yeah. the lessons learned out of that and the policy changes that come out of that and and you know the experience that folks like you have can then allow a lot more startups to grow even faster and achieve the type of scale that you would achieve, let's say, in 10 years in half that time, right? Because they won't have to fight the battles that you are already fighting. And that's how the ecosystem uh, would grow. Um, Speaking of the ecosystem, um, you're a woman entrepreneur. We talked a bit about it, um, but it remains a problem in Pakistan, right? Not only in the formal economy, but particularly in entrepreneurship. Um, Women are entering the workforce and they're becoming business leaders. Um, But I just wanted to get your view in terms of how do you think more women, uh, particularly uh, women who may be from the middle class, um, may have a lot of the patriarchal norms holding them back. How can they be encouraged to be business leaders like you and have an impact um, the way you are having through Garpat?
1: I think the first step is to encourage them to do what they're doing from within their comfort zone. Um, So I think there's also like a little bit of this idea that, oh, you're only a business uh, owner or a business woman or a man if you have an office and if you have a factory Mm -hmm. or you have like a team. But you'll be surprised at the number of amazing businesses women are doing at a much smaller scale from their homes. Um, there's a lot of um, a lot of interesting stuff coming out that's very relevant to like the day to day to day needs of the average Pakistani, the middle class Pakistani. Um, I think those women need to be brought together without made to feel like they're not business women. In fact, they need to be told that you are business women and you guys are doing important work because you're providing you're servicing a need and your office and even your product and even your like re- your resume does not tell us about how awesome a businesswoman you are. The customer who's demanding your, demanding a your service does. So it's the customer who testifies to how good a business you're running. And if you have customers who are coming back to you on repeat, you have something really awesome, which you should mm-hmm. be filling up. So I think that the, the way the conversation is held needs to change a bit. I think a lot of women get very easily intimidated. Um, They don't have authentic mentors, people who have the best interest at heart. That is a problem in Pakistan in the ecosystem as well. Um, I see a lot of younger startups, uh, a lot of kids who are doing some awesome work uh, sort of get overshadowed and bought out really quickly by like really predatory investors. And that needs to be regulated somehow. Because that can be really problematic,
0: yeah, and I've heard that um as well in terms of you know early stage funding and a lot of predatory yeah. practices where a big stake is taken for pennies on the dollar, and then the founders are are basically screwed right for the yeah. for the whole time of their startup. but your point about women entrepreneurs like at a small scale and having that conversation resonates i mean i'm as you were saying that I was thinking about my aunt who Runs her own business. If now that I think about it, uh, catering food for other women who may have guests or visitors from outside. So she makes biryani, shami kabab, etc. And she's been doing it for years. And she has repeat customers. Um, She runs. She may not have an office. She may not have a fancy accounting software to keep track of her expenses and everything. But she's an entrepreneur, and she keeps track of. Um, how much it costs her to make something and how much she charges and yeah. she runs a profitable enterprise, exactly. right? And she has customer loyalty. And that is what a business is, essentially. Um, the question is, can more women like her be brought in, into the more formal economy and convinced yeah. to go, grow and scale? Because that's that's good for everybody in, in the yeah. country. Um, and so I think it it connects back to where we started, which is how do you start this journey of a beautician. Um, and it, in many ways, it is similar for a woman entrepreneur as well in terms of how does that journey start. It starts with a conversation about where do they want to see themselves and where do they want to go. And once you have that, um, you open the door for a lot more opportunity. Um, I think we're coming to the close of our conversation. It has been fascinating and I've really enjoyed it. um, And truly been an eye-opening conversation for me as well. So thank you for taking out the time. Um, Before I let you leave, um, I've been asking, or my goal is to keep asking my guests about book recommendations. So any two or three books that you recently read that you would recommend that people pick up and and, and read?
1: Yeah, sure. So... um... The two books that I've been reading recently, I've read quite a few, but the two that I found uh, really interesting, one is called The Prince,
0: mm-hmm.
1: uh, but it's its very old. I mean, it's by,
0: by Machiavelli. By Machiavelli. That, yeah.
1: Yeah. Uh, and then the other one is called uh, Dare to Lead by Brene Brown.
0: Okay. Uh, well, thanks you, for those recommendations. Yeah, the right, prince is fascinating. He has very uh,
1: stark views on how to, to lead but, but yeah. the one is all about LL. vulnerability and one, of, one is all about using fear and cruelty to
0: <laughs> yeah, yeah. I'm a Machiavellian. And you, you can contrast the two visions, right, and see where you wanna yeah, be on exactly. that spectrum.
1: That's 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 the struggle as a leader. Like, what what am I supposed yeah. to be doing over here right now? Yeah. So it's quite a bit
0: of both, right? Depends on who you're dealing with, <laughs> <Yeah>. I guess. <laughs> the 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 white uh, man who's giving you funding rounds and giving you a hard time as a myopic view. I think the strategies in the Prince may be more apt for those types of people
1: absolutely yeah so
0: well thanks for thanks for joining um and taking out the time this was great and you know hopefully we'll have you again in a few months and talk more about startups in pakistan and how garpar is doing Uh, thank you
1: thank you so much have a great day
0: you as well bye-bye